Today on Against the Grain, neoliberalism, centrist, radical, ideology, the people. These are all words that are used to mark out someone's understanding of the world. Yet many of these words are fuzzy and obscure more than they illuminate. John Patrick Leary breaks down some of the key political words of our time. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. In the 1970s, Welsh Marxist cultural critic Raymond Williams published a germinal book about keywords, words that unlock a deeper understanding of the politics of a society. John Patrick Leary has attempted to bring that project up to date in two books about the pivotal words of contemporary capitalism. Most recently, Keywords for Capitalism, Power, Society, Politics, published by Haymarket. In it, he examines the political terminology of American society, often the buzzwords of political discourse, but also words like class that are frequently omitted. Leary teaches social studies in public schools in Philadelphia and is also the author of Keywords, The New Language of Capitalism. Let's begin here. Before we get into the myriad ways that politics is discussed or not discussed in the United States, I wanted to ask you why the terrain of language is important. What's at stake here? Well, I think partly because, you know, the nature of the society we live in being so highly mediated and so uh, heavily dependent on various kinds of forms of communication makes the, the, the language with which politics is conducted a big part of what it means to conduct politics, whether you're in like a, a more official capacity, like in government, or whether you're um, somebody who is more of an activist or more in kind of movement um, spaces. And so that's part of it is just that the way we talk about politics is very related to the way in which we organize people, communicate with uh, audiences, constituencies, future allies, etc. Um, and then also because of, you know, because of a word that I talk about in the book, which is ideology, you know, it's the way in which we imagine our conditions of existence, the way in which we imagine our society, how we relate to each other, where wealth comes from, where poverty comes from. Those are all things that happen in culture and communication and thus in language. This book and also your previous book were inspired by the Welsh Marxist cultural critic Raymond Williams and his great work Keywords, a Vocabulary of Culture and Society, which was published in the mid-1970s. Drawing from him, what do you think makes a word key? That's a good question. So uh, a word that is key is, first of all, it's key in the sense that it's important. And that's a sort of subjective, I guess, evaluation, whether it's important, you know, whether it's that one hears it a lot, that it's used, that it's a source of controversy, that it's something people fight about, um, that it's something that people claim, you know, like, say, democracy or liberal or conservative or patriot. These are all identities that people embrace, and therefore um, those terms become important because it becomes important to define what those positions mean and the, the the name is part of how you do that. What also makes a word key is whether it unlocks something. So, you know, the key in those two senses of being something important and being something that is the kind of uh, point of entry into a, a more interesting or more contested discussion. So again, like the, the same examples apply. Like if democracy is important. We talk about it all the time. We justify everything in terms of the pursuit of democracy. Um, but then it, once one, once you start sort of peeking at the word and sort of thinking about its history and the history of the movements that have called themselves democratic, and that is a whole 
that opens up a door to sort of vast uh, number of kind of histories, arguments, and discussions. And so it's key in those, both the sense of importance and, both the, and in the sense of unlocking something. In your latest book, you look at the language of politics broadly defined. And, and you start with looking at the language of the political establishment and the mainstream media of official politics, so to speak. And you frame it as, in fact, it gets framed itself as, in a sense, a sport, a spectator sport. Can you talk about the language of official politics and what it includes and what it leaves out? The term I use for the spectator sport, uh, the particular spectator sport I'm using is the horse race. You know, this is the term that people use to talk about politics as it's debated on TV, you know, by pundits and so forth. And so what one of the things as I was thinking about that analogy that I realized is that, you know, we don't we it's a very unique sort of spectator sport that we use to describe um, electoral politics, which is, you know, it's the only it's the only spectator sport in which humans don't actually can't actually participate. You can you can watch it. You can bet on it. You can be a fan of it, but you can't do it because you're not a horse. And politics strikes me as being sort of the same way when we talk about it in this way, when it's something that's like blue states versus red states and Democrats versus Republicans and only think about it in those terms. We're thinking about it as something very much remote from our experience, as something in which we can't and don't participate, as something that is only there to be watched and observed um, and argued over, but not actually done. So that's the main thing, I think, is that the way I divide the, the book up and the way I divide the sort of groups of terms that we're talking about is basically in the horse race. These are things, these are ways in which uh, politics is made remote from our experience, the way it's rendered as like a sort of domain of just experts or um, great leaders or particular kinds of groups of people that don't, that most people don't have a kind of close relationship with. And then The other ways the book kind of gets divided up is into movements, so the ways in which average people um, who are not professionals or experts necessarily, or experts in the kind of typical sense, um, participate in in, uh, making and shaping our societies. And then like the structures that kind of impede those uh, movements and also give, uh, give shape to them. So structures like class and the economy and ideology and uh, neoliberalism and conservative and things like that. And of course, as the, you know, you were just describing the different dimensions of politics um, as you come at it. And of course, as you acknowledge, uh, they may interact with, with each other. In other words, you know, what people on the left or when the social movements might be using as language, meaning isn't necessarily entirely separate from officialdom in some places and, and then quite different in others. Um, but I wanted to, uh, you know, springboarding off of that, ask you about uh, the spectrum of alternatives that we are offered uh, within a mainstream discourse about politics in the United States. Starting with the term, you know, dead in the center of it, the term centrism or center, what does that term actually mean? On one sense, not very much, <laughs> um, but, but it's a term that's, you know, again, it's key in the sense that it's important. We hear it constantly. We hear it praised. It's a way of kind of defining what is uh, reasonable and rational. Um, and so when you start looking at it and its history. Center means, I think, the way it's used means sort of two different things. It, on the one hand, it's kind of like an emotional state or a, a uh, way of like conducting oneself. So center, to be a centrist is to be not wild-eyed, you know, which is how the, a leftist or a, maybe a, a far-right person is wild-eyed, it is not to be uh, extreme, or emotional, or to be driven by uh, ideology, but it is to be someone who's very like emotionally stable and 
uh, moderate in the kind of emotional sense and, you know, driven by very pragmatic considerations and not kind of doesn't get carried away with their feelings. And then um, there's the other sense of, of to be a centrist is to be someone who's committed to uh, finding a middle ground between, as we often say in this country, both sides, so Republicans and Democrats. This is both sides always, again, this is a horse race term, a horse race term. So it means uh, you're in the center between these two kind of uh, poles as they're constructed in kind of the House of Representatives. So, um, but one of the things about one of the ways in which center and centrist doesn't really mean anything is that it is always used by those who claim the title as a kind of coherent position as, you know, a, a real place on the political spectrum. But it's by kind of its definition, it's defined only relatively. It's only defined in terms of what it's in the center of. So the center is actually made more by what is on its fringes than it is made by any kind of coherent um, set of ideas of its own, you know, because you can't be the center of nothing. You have to be the center of something else. And what is defines the range is left and right. And so the, the, the claim that centrists often make to be the kind of standard bearers for a tradition or a reasonable um, pragmatic position, I think is a bit of a deception because the center is constantly changing because uh, it is, by its definition, not a stable place. Sure, which is why a lot of politicians in the Democratic Party might be termed center-right if they were in Europe, but may even be called liberal in the context of the United States. I wanted to ask you about the related concept to the idea of the center, which is of polarization. We've heard a great deal about how polarized politics has become in the United States. And that's usually said negatively in the same way that centrist politics tends to be synonymous with sort of the adults. How do you make sense of this term polarization? Yeah, I mean, like with the concept of centrism, it presumes a kind of clarity I think that it doesn't actually have. So polarization, you know, means if you're if you're going to bemoan polarization, you're assuming first of all that there are clear poles that are very different from each other and very opposed. So there's a kind of set of assumptions that get built into the lament for polarization. Um, so that would require you to say that you know the Democrat and Republican parties are in fact extremely different and that they're. Uh, leadership is in fact extremely opposed to each other and that they are ideologically really at odds. And, you know, there are certain ways in which and certain issues around which that arguably is true and that there are, and there are many ways in which we can see, uh, you know, leading Democrats and leading Republicans working in kind of in tandem on many fundamental issues such as, you know, policing, for example, or a general kind of economic policy uh, being um, oriented towards the interests of big business. So that's the first problem with polarization. The second is that uh, it has a real deeply limited kind of historical perspective. I mean, in the United States, when we're talking about polarization, the, the assumption is, again, always that political conflict is a bad thing and a thing to be avoided. And partisanship, relatedly, is a, is a sin to be avoided and something that, we, uh, that, that is only destructive. And then relatedly, tribalism, which is maybe we'll get to, uh, which is the kind of most, I think, pernicious and kind of stupidest version of this argument, to be just blunt about it, uh, is also something to be avoided and something that is, is shameful. And so the idea then is that uh, political conflict is bad, political order and comedy is objectively good. Uh, but then we at, we're left with the question, well, what if your political opponents really are trying to kill you? <laughs> or what if your political opponents really do want to reduce you to uh, a state of semi-citizenship so or second-class citizenship? And in that case, well, I would hope that people who are claimed to be Democrats would be extremely viciously partisan in defense of those rights that are being threatened. 
Um, if you think about, you know, the Civil War, for example, if you think about Reconstruction, if you think about the Civil Rights Movement, um, to just name that political trajectory, which, uh, it, that's one where polarization was absolutely necessary to uh, create a kind of necessary crisis to transform the country in a way that um, it needed to be transformed. So the, the lament for polarization is a kind of really narrow-minded and kind of historically blinkered perspective, I think. Right, and one could say quite a lot about the notions of order and disorder as they have played out as sort of key political concepts. John Patrick Leary is my guest. He is the author of Keywords for Capitalism, Power, Society, Politics, Power, Society, Politics, published by Haymarket. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Well, we're talking about words that have a strongly negative connotation like polarization or partisan. Uh, One that, though, is very definitely warm and fuzzy, although if one digs uh, not too deeply, becomes problematic rather fast, is the term folks. Uh, Folks is a term that is used pretty ubiquitously in American discourse. And I've noted uh, increasingly on the left, including with the inclusive spelling F-O-L-X rather than F-O-L-K-S. What do you make of the term folks? Well, you know, this is, yeah, one of the more arguably harmless uh, terms in the book, but it um, it's something that I became... I think most people became kind of aware of as a an important part of American political discourse because Obama was so fond of it. Um, he said it constantly. Uh, most notoriously in 2014, he was talking about the Bush administration's torture record. Uh, Obama said in a press conference, we tortured some folks um, and then said that we should not be too sanctimonious about the tough job that those folks, meaning the CIA interrogators, uh, had to do. So he, 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 like within a space of a, a minute or two, described both the torturers and their victims as, as folks, and it was a kind of deeply odd and kind of a insensitive conflation of this sort of uh, this kind of cornball term, you know that means to include everybody as being basically on the same side and we're all just friends here and nobody's really no there's no kind of social hierarchy we're a country of folks you know um and then to to invest uh one of the most brutal um exercises of imperial power in the last you know 20 years with that kind of like huck's corniness was so like jarring and off-putting. So that's why I became obsessed with folks. Um, I think, you know, it's a, it's, it's a word that expresses a lot of kind of American political sort of style, meaning politicians, the way politicians try to act as kind of um, representatives of, of a common person. And that common person is somebody, this is where the term becomes less warm and fuzzy, who that common person is is a subject is can be a very controversial uh, matter because that common person can be white Southerners, you know. It can be, you know, real Americans, as Sarah Palin used to say. Um, it can be uh, shopkeepers. It can, so it's a very like class-based and racially explosive term, you know. And so when one is talking about folks, you always have to ask who you're talking to and who you're talking about and who you're not talking about. So it's also, and then when, you know, when oh, I think Obama does it, to so go back to the torture example, it's a way of just sort of denying that there are actual stakes or sides in, a, in the political discussions you're having. Uh, that was what was so bizarre about him talking about torture victims and tortures as folks, because the whole point is that they're not, it could not be more clearly antagonistic a relationship than the one between a torturer and the person he's torturing. So to describe them as just like, no, we're all just folks was, um, it's a bizarre example of the, uh, of the, the usage that wants to deny that there are real oppositions and real stakes and real interests 
at work in our political arguments and debates. Well, do you think it also indicates in some way the absence of another key word, um, and that word is class, that it is often used in the sense of uh, not the elite, everyone else, but avoiding the term class, which obviously comes loaded with all sorts of politics and potentially a sense of power. Yeah. And, you know, class is a social division that I think Americans for a long time, or at least some Americans for a long time, have kind of accepted as a truism that we don't have here or that we are not, we are not a, a country that has a class system in the same way that Britain does or same way that uh, other countries in Europe do. Um, and so, but of course we do understand that there are uh, hierarchies other than racial and gender hierarchies in the United States. And, when, and to the degree that we understand these as class hierarchies, we typically, or at least mainstream politicians and sort of pundits and kind of uh, people like that tend to talk about it as a matter of culture than as a matter of um, property or exploitation. So class is, you can see, you can see class at work when, you know, somebody is like eating uh, donuts at the Iowa caucus or whatever, you know, whatever these sort of performances of folksiness that politicians do during presidential election time. Or um, when, I don't know if people remember Ted Cruz a few months ago said that uh, climate change policy was more about the uh, people of Paris than the folks in Pittsburgh, meaning that Parisians are, you know, snooty, <laughs> snooty elitist types who like smoke little cigarettes and wear turtlenecks. And Pittsburgh is like the, the, the land of hardworking, authentic, real Americans, again, who are white, who are kind of have a lunch pail, have a hard hat or whatever, that sort of uh, and that's just like a fantasy, a kind of set of vague cultural affiliation or associations that people that uh, that class summons for people. And so I wanted to talk about that usage um, and how that tends to work. And then this is kind of what my what I'm also trying to do with the book is um, not just talk about the kind of phony ways or the deceptive ways in which some of these terms operate in our like political discourse, but actually, give readers a, um, you know, a kind of useful uh, kind of lexicon, a useful sort of handbook for how to make sense of these kind of thorny and um, thorny terms. Because they, you know, class is a real thing. It does really exist. It's not just a made up, it's not just Ted Cruz's imagination, of course. It, it, and, and to the talk about the ways in which it really does work and how we actually need to understand it. And I think if you're, you know, someone on the left, that was what I wanted to do. Indeed, and, and one of the places where you indicate both left and right, both sort of grapple with some of these questions in language is around the term people. People like folks is a term that is very inclusive, but pretty fuzzy and can mean actually quite different things uh, depending on who's deploying it. Yeah, I started um, the entry on people with just the famous three words, you know, from the Declaration of Independence, the we the people who uh, supposedly are represented by the document, you know, and the um, interesting thing about that was that uh, the Constitution never defines who the people are. I mean, that's a that is a, a a good example of a of a key word that is both important but also unlocks a kind of hornet's nest of arguments and and a, and a very tangled history because the the history of the country arguably is one in which the definition of who counts as people is. Um, under constant uh, subject of constant political struggle, you know, um, does the people include prisoners? Not are not exactly, not clearly. Does it include uh, undocumented immigrants? Not really, not exactly. Does it include women? It didn't for 
half the country's existence. Um, so, yes, people is a is a is a word that uh, seems straightforward, but conceals a host of kind of arguments. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. I'm speaking with John Patrick Leary about his book, Keywords for Capitalism, Power, Society, Politics. That's published by Haymarket. He teaches social studies in public schools in Philadelphia, and we spoke to him earlier about his other book, Keywords for Capitalism. One of the words that you have mentioned that I think is very important in even making sense of language is the notion and the word ideology. And I wonder if you could trace for us some of the origins of the word, or at least where the notion of ideology has been most conceptualized on the left, and how the term gets used in more broadly public and mainstream discourse. Mm-hmm. Right. So this is a, a tough word, and this is one where I, I kind of lean a lot on uh, Raymond Williams' original entry in keywords is quite good on ideology. And as he explains, um, the term gets its start uh, as a loan word from the French, from ideologie, and it's m- most uh, famously used there by Napoleon Bonaparte, who uses it to describe just like foolish ideas. Um, he he says it's uh, impractical ideas, only popular among hot-brained boys and crazed enthusiasts. <laughs> so the um, the idea that someone who is part of, partial to ideology is a kind of crazed enthusiast of some impractical position. That's the way it's used really on you know when you listen to. MSNBC or something, when you hear kind of um, pundits and kind of politicians talk about be driven by being driven by ideology rather than policy or something, you know, it's so it's it's to be unreasonable to be um, impractical. Now, the I think more sophisticated meaning of ideology, which comes from, you know, a Marxist tradition broadly, but again, here, even here, there's a lot of different versions of a kind of Marxist account of what ideology is, is to say that it's your imaginary connection to your real conditions of existence. This is what Louis Althusser, the French uh, philosopher, calls it. So meaning it's how you imagine, that is how you understand your conditions of existence, how you how you get up in the morning, who how you get paid, how you, what, what you're working for, what your workplace is like, what your, what marriage is, what your mother and father were to you, what school is, all these kinds of, kind, all these kinds of ways in which you get through the day, how you imagine your relationship to those things and how you understand your place in those systems and structures is what ideology is. Um, and so it's not something that you can sort of either have or not, you know, the way that it's not like, some people have an ideology and other people are just reasonable and rational. Um, everybody is kind of trying to figure out and place themselves in a whole nest of systems of order and power. And how you do that is an ideological kind of question. So that's the kind of most simplest definition that I can think of. Which leads us to the left. And, and as you say, there may be ideas that we actively embrace or we think we subscribe to and then there are the ideas that really are how we make sense of our world an involuntary aspect of just existing under capitalism and so you point to how there are of course keywords for the left as well as for the right or for the mainstream and often those words aren't particularly well interrogated I wanted to ask you about some of them, starting maybe with the blandest, but one that we've heard a lot about recently in the context of all sorts of anti-vaccine sentiment and so on, which is a sentiment from the left, or at least some in the left, and, and certainly liberals as well, of an embrace of something that is called science. How do you think of that term as a keyword? Yeah, well, again, sort of like 
we were just saying with ideology and a little bit with censure before, science often gets invoked as just a, as a synonym for being a smart person or being a reasonable person or being level-headed. Um, so, you know, reasonable people have that sign on their front yard that says we believe in science and then, you know, obvious idiots don't, you know, or don't believe in that. Um, and to believe in science, I think, doesn't mean anything other than that you believe in observable phenomena and uh, empirical ways of testing them. And so I don't think, you know, even the most hardcore anti-vaxxer believes in science. They just don't believe in the same science that, um, that I do. So the question is less about whether you are partial to science and more about what sort of science you're partial to and what you're trying to do with it. So what I wanted to push back against in that, in that um, essay was the idea that science is a kind of objective truth that is that can be safely siphoned off from politics rather than as something that's like everything else um, is politicized and expresses certain interests sometimes explicitly and sometimes as in this case sometimes it just sort of hints at those political interests without really naming them so um, you know if you believe in science you are a kind of liberal Democrat, if you don't, you're a Republican or anti-vaxxer or something. Um, when you look at the history of science in the United States, um, you can see all kinds of political uses of what was the accepted, sophisticated, leading science of the day. You know, uh, Silas Weir, neuro, neuroscientist, pioneering um, physician his there's a big plaque to him on walnut street in downtown philadelphia uh he was the guy who invented the rest cure for uh hysterical patients for hysterical women patients which meant that if you were suffering from what we might now call anxiety you were to be locked in a room for months on end with no contact with other people so that was science you know so um all that is to say is that uh is not to be Science isn't something I think it's useful to think about as being for or against, but it's a you know it's a it's a it's a political language, and so should be thought of that way. And this does tie back to some of the themes that you've been touching on during this hour, which is this notion, often connected to this somewhere close to the center, of a realm without politics, and then other things on the fringe, which are ideological or dogmatic or political, and you're saying that all of these things are political, that none of these escape politics, that the scientific method operates in a context in which politics operates and so is going to be shaped by that as well. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's, it's fairly uncontroversial to say that science is, you know, scientific priorities, what gets researched, what gets funded and so forth is shaped by political priorities. Um, and so I don't think it's a big leap from there to say that what counts as science or what counts as worthwhile science or what counts as scientifically, um, scientifically informed is also shaped by political considerations. And we have to have a bit of, I think a bit of historical perspective on that makes that very clear. So when you go back to Silas Weir Mitchell and when you go back to kind of racial science of the 19th century, um, you can you can see how just simply being an accredited, sophisticated science scientist does not insulate you from um, being a politician. Another place where the language of the left and progressives often overlaps with that of the center and even the right, especially as it relates to the so-called business community. Uh, is the term inclusion. What is your take on this word? Well, okay, so this, this is a word that, unlike science, which I don't have a position on the word science, I mean, I'm not against it or for it, but inclusion I kind of think is a, is a generally fairly pernicious concept um, because of the ways in which it is used, once again, to smooth over conflict 
that really does exist in, in kind of institutions and universities and schools and workplaces and all the places where, you know, you find a, an office of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, so, you know, as an example in the, the uh, essay I wrote about it, um, inclusion usually suggests something worth, totally worthwhile, a mission to make an institution more hospitable to people who've been excluded from it before. And so Harvard, you know, has a office of diversity, equity, inclusion, and their mission is to catalyze, convene, and build capacity for equity, diversity, inclusion, belonging, and anti-racism initiatives across university. But, you know, what, what, what will never be kind of grappled with by the, that office, obviously, is like, how much Harvard costs or how much it pays its cafeteria workers or these kinds of fundamental important um, questions of, of access, of belonging um, and of power in the institution. Another way of thinking about inclusion is to think about a word that it kind of suggests, but I think replaces in a lot of our discussions, which is integration. So, Integration, especially racial integration, right, means the transformation of formerly segregated institutions to include uh, people whose, it was the fundamental purpose of the institution to, to keep out. So when you integrate, you know, a, an all-white university, or when you integrate an all-white public school system, you are at least... I think, theoretically, in many ways, practically transforming that institution in a kind of deep and thorough way. Um, but when you include people into Harvard, you're not transforming Harvard, really. You're making it a bit more inclusive than it used to be before. So there's a way in which inclusion is a kind of way of thinking about um, opening up institutions without really transforming them. And, uh, and I think that becomes clear once you think about inclusion as a as a very different concept than integration. Even though I mean, many people on the on the left and many people in the Black Freedom Movement will have a you know a critical view of the of of integration as a as a political goal. But at least as a at least conceptually, it had bigger ambitions than inclusion ever could have. I think. Let me ask you about the term intersectionality, which came out of academia the legal scholar Kimberly Crenshaw in the late 80s, but has become much more widely embraced amongst activist circles and amongst progressives. Give us your read on this term. Okay, so one of the, th so one of the things that I wanted to do with, in this book with concepts, terms that are of, that are that are controversial now, like class, which we talked about already, um, neoliberalism, which <laughs> maybe we'll have to talk about. I kind of was a little worried that you're gonna want to talk about neoliberalism, but um, and then intersectionality is that um, I wanted to avoid a kind of like a hot take um, heavy response to these concepts and be a bit more measured in a way, uh, because they're, you know, they're, they're way, especially, you know, social media and so forth. They're, these are things when you can make a whole, you can just develop a whole kind of, uh, reams of content by having some screaming match about intersectionality. And so I, but I wanted to be a bit more, uh, measured in thinking about it seriously, um, as a, a word that is also the name for a kind of rich intellectual tradition. So, Basically, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw, legal theorist, is usually credited with not, if not coining the term exactly or inventing it, at least sort of giving it its most coherent shape and definition that other people have built on. So, so she talks about it, you know, she's a lawyer, a legal scholar, so she talks about intersectionality in the context of this discrimination case that was brought by a group of black women who worked for General Motors and they were kind of claiming discrimination both as as women and as black people. So in terms of these like two kind of identities that for them are not 
separable but are related to each other in, in, inseparably. Uh, and the case, the judge ruled that because there was another race discrimination suit going on in the courts at the time against General Motors, the case couldn't go forward because there was already a, because there was, was a race discrimination case. It couldn't be judged as a racial and sex discrimination case. And so Crenshaw says, makes this analogy to an intersection, like a street intersection, in which there's traffic coming from all four directions, and you might get hit by a car coming north, and you might get hit by a car coming east. And either way, you're going to get run over by a car, you know? And so you have to take each of those directions seriously and treat them as kind of autonomous, but also interrelated. And that's what intersectionality is. She says, if a black woman is harmed because she is in the intersection, her injury could result from sex discrimination or race discrimination. Um, now, the, I think a lot of the, the heat around this term, um, where people are sort of arguing about it on the left now, comes, again, because, partly because it is used, I think, often sort of shallowly as just a a uh, token for some other some other set of arguments that people want to have. So, you know, on the right, people talk about intersectionality as just kind of uh, a synonym for wokeness or something, you know, um, politically correct language, being angry at white men all the time unfairly, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, I think that can be kind of fairly easily discarded. <laughs> we don't have to talk about that too much because it's clearly sort of opportunistic and, and unserious. It doesn't really take the term seriously and it doesn't ever look at what Kimberly Crenshaw wrote and doesn't look at what uh, Demita Frazier and Beverly and Barbara Smith wrote in the Combi River Collective Statement and um, in 1977. You know, again, this is a tradition. There's a lot of reading you have to do. So I just want to be kind of, uh, we don't, can't get into all of it, but I just want to kind of e emphasize that there's, this isn't something to just be reading up on Twitter and then like having a, having an opinion about, um, and then, you know, and then the other, the controversies also come from the way in which it's kind of used, I think, opportunistically by, you know, liberals who like, you know, somewhat notoriously Hillary Clinton, when she was running for president, posted this, uh, you know, a tweet, um, that I remember it was like this sort of word cloud with like, with like a hundred different words that all had to do vaguely with like political identities. And then there was a bunch of arrows. You were, the, the thing was like totally incomprehensible and made no sense what the, what the, how you're supposed to decipher the map, but it said, we face an intersectional set of challenges and, you know, my campaign will fix them or address them or something. And so here it just meant, it was just used sort of lazily as a way of saying like, I am for all the good things, you know what I mean? Um, and that's not a, that's, that's no good. And so I guess part of what, uh, I wanted to do in the, in this essay on intersectionality is to give a useful overview of what the actual arguments are and what the actual debates that feminist scholars, black feminist scholars in particular have been having for like the last 50 years about identity politics and intersectionality because these are sort of related concepts. Um, and then also to kind of discuss the way in which words like intersectionality get used as kind of get taken up as sort of like emblems or tokens of something else, which they, uh, you know, so they, so intersectionality has a real meaning you have to do the reading. You have to go read the Comedy River statement. You have to go read Kimberly Crenshaw to get that meaning. But it also has another meaning, which is less serious and less um, sophisticated, I would say, but but nonetheless important key in that regard because it's it's how people encounter intersectionality as like some swear word that people use to to denounce liberals or to denounce uh, people on the left or to denounce anti-racist college students or something. John Patrick Leary is my guest. He has written keywords for capitalism, power, society, politics. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Well, staying with the language of the left broadly defined, what about this term radical? 
Yeah, well, radical, radical is a little easier. So I'm glad, I'm glad we pivoted to radical instead of going straight, straight to neoliberalism. Um, you know, radical means to go to the root. Uh, that's the root, literally, of the word. To uh, you know, when I when I ask students about radical, they always bring up um, square roots, which is a term, which is a concept that I'd kind of forgotten about because I had forgotten about high school math, but it, it, whether you're talking about mathematical roots, whether you're talking about the roots of plants or the roots of words, the etymologies of words, radical is a kind of word that derives from going to the root of something, to its origins. And in the concepts of radical politics, it means going to the, or to the root of a, of a particular social problem and uh, transforming it there rather than transforming you know if you think about a tree okay for as a analogy for a social problem whatever if you think about a tree to represent uh, american class inequality you know one can you can prune the branches and you can kind of make the tree look nicer you can uh but or you can uh, go to the root from which it feeds and transform it from the ground up and that's the idea i think the basic definition of radicalism is to go to the root of, of something. Okay, so I'm not going to spare you here. Let's let's talk about neoliberalism. It's a, a term that's very confusing, I think even for people on the left, because I think the origins of the term liberalism obviously evokes uh, for people in the United States having progressive views on social justice issues, and yet liberalism and the term neoliberalism comes from the European sense of free market. So how do you understand how we use neoliberalism? Yeah, so, I mean, part of my uh, reluctance to get into it has to do with the fact that, you know, it's, it's like intersectionality. It's a word that we talk about as often as just a word um, and less as much as we talk about what it, what it can mean and what it can allow us to diagnose or talk about as a as a you know, as a way of thinking about the problems of our society and how our society is organized, um, so I think the two things have to be sort of separated. Like, what do people mean when they say neoliberalism, and what is a useful way of thinking about the differences, uh, in, in, you know, the different takes that people have on it? Um, it it's it's a it, and the first thing to say is that it's a it's a contested term and it's kind of ambiguous and we don't really know exactly what it means as you said like even people who believe that it's a thing aren't exactly sure how to say what kind of thing it is and that's sometimes gets used by critics of the concept as like as a proof that it's a bad concept you know um, but that, all that is is a proof of the fact that you know we're living in it so we are not quite sure it's like the oxygen we breathe so we're not quite sure how to um how to articulate what it is and to what kind of shape it has you know in this in my book there's i talk about a little bit about like concepts that like whose time has passed you know puritans scalawag you know a term from like reconstruction wobbly like you can go to the dictionary and find out what those words mean and it's like not particularly controversial it's pretty clear because those words are sort of their moment has has come and gone but neoliberalism is unfortunately definitely not come and gone and so we're still sort of fit sorting out what it is and it's what it is what it is changes a lot um i think the the simplest way of of describing it and i learned this from quinn slobodian who's a scholar of neoliberalism a very clear eyed and very um, smart distiller of a vast and kind of, for me, difficult and extremely boring literature on it. So um, he, the way he puts it and the way he talks about it is neoliberalism is the practice of free markets and a strong state. And, and why that is important is because I think one of the, one of the sort of triumphs of neoliberal ideology is to convince us that free markets means the absence of a strong state that free markets is a kind of uh 
is first of all like the natural state of the capitalist market is to be is to be free and un, untethered and the 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 crime of uh socialism or of liberal welfare state is to kind of enclose it in regulations and that's like a very pervasive myth in american official politics you know but it's also the way in which uh, you know a lot of people on the left sometimes fall in to that same ruse of, of just of saying like free market ideology wants to get rid of regulations or something or wants to get rid of environmental but um but i think the more the more accurate way of understanding what neo neoliberalism is is it's an expansion of of power by uh business and by um capital um and the use of the state as a as a way of uh, facilitating that power. And so when you think about it in terms of power rather than in terms of, you know, and, and the consolidation of it, rather than uh, as the loosening of regulation of power of restriction, you know, it, it becomes much clearer, I think, what, why, uh, you know, why we have, for example, um, a vast prison apparatus and a minuscule uh, social welfare state and um, and a, a political structure that's that is constantly crowing about its love of uh, deregulation and getting government out of the lives of everyday Americans. You know, that's not just a, that's not just like simple hypocrisy, but something that actually now appears a bit consistent. Indeed. John Patrick Leary, thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. John Patrick Leary is author of Keywords for Capitalism, Power, Society, Politics. That's published by Haymarket, and you can find a link to that book at againstthegrain.org. We've spoken to him previously about his book, Keywords, The New Language of Capitalism. He teaches social studies in public schools in Philadelphia. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening, and please tune in again next time. (laughs) 